Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the podcast. We are continuing in 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 7, finishing out chapter 7. And uh, as we had a discussion last time about marriage and relationships, we kind of... uh, see and we, we we hinted about singleness a little bit last time yeah. but now we definitely see paul talking about this topic specifically so we'll we'll hit that uh, a bit tonight right yeah so he does a mention or address virgins uh mm-hmm. what, what's happening here what do we do with this yeah so verse 25 we're in first corinthians chapter 7 and it says now concerning and so now concerning is your indication that we have a change of topic um, but it doesn't appear to be a complete change of topic. And again, now concerning means I'm addressing the things that you brought up in the letter that you wrote to me. So uh, chapter seven, verse one, uh, now concerning the things you wrote about. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And we discussed all of that. So we have another now concerning in verse 25. And so it says, uh, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So what Paul's been doing in this chapter is they have been making this argument that the people need to remain as they are. And Paul seems to be replying, well, okay, but. And so, hey, remain in you are as you are, but if you're in marriage already, you can't have sexual relations for whatever reasons that they were arguing about that we discussed last time. Now, remain as you are. You know, if you're in a marriage, you know, and your spouse wants to leave and they're not a believer, you can't let them go because you have to remain as you are. And Paul keeps going, well, yeah, but. You know, if you're in a marriage, you have a responsibility to your spouse to have sexual relations. And if you're in a marriage, and your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. It's okay. Keep peace. That's important as, as a witness. And But however, if they want to remain in the marriage, then you should remain in that marriage because they're sanctified unto you. So now he turns to those who were engaged. And I think when it says now concerning um, virgins, I think he's talking about young p- people who are of marriageable age and they were already engaged. Uh, when he says... In, in in the you're reading from the New American Standard, it says yeah. I give uh, my opinion. In the ESV, it says I give my judgments. What does he uh, mean by that? Yeah, I think he's simply saying this is something that Jesus didn't address again. We discussed this, I think, last time. Jesus didn't address this, so instead, Paul's simply offering his own opinion. But the question is: Is his opinion inspired? Is his opinion from an apostle? Or is it just like Paul's opinion? I think you and I would probably, I'm not sure where you're at, but I think we'd probably affirm, well, it's certainly an, an apostle. So it's an apostolic com- statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we'd agree that it's under inspiration. He's writing mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians, and this is part of the canon. So it's not like, that's just my opinion. Do with this whatever you want. I think it's, this is my opinion in the sense that Jesus didn't address this. Yeah. And when you said that we already addressed this in the last episode, we talked about when he makes statements like not I, but the Lord. And then he would say, oh, uh, this is now, you know, what I say. Uh, and yeah. so it's, it's, it's right. what is he doing there? And it's like we you mentioned earlier, he's referring to uh, teachings that Jesus would have had. And now he's saying, okay, this is my teaching. This isn't something that you heard Jesus say. Uh, right. And so that's what the reference was. Uh, so in verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, or I guess we could say to be inclusive as they are, because he's not just directly addressing men there. So what what does he mean by present distress or some translations say crisis? It's it's something. Okay. Yeah. Ultimately, the answer is we don't know, right? Some think that there was some specific thing going on that was telling people, and that's why they were saying, hey, guys, remain as you are. 
the general consensus appears to be in the scholarly world is that it's simply a reference to the present age, that the present crisis is the present age. The present age is an age of which the people of God suffer tribulation, persecution, and suffering. You know, Paul, and first, when we get to the book of Galatians, Paul's going to call it the present evil age. Mm-hmm. So maybe they were saying that because the present evil age is still full of sin, you guys should stay the way you are. And and for those, we've talked about those before. Don't think of present age and yeah. age to come as uh, chronological periods, because that, that's what people get hung up on. It's right. like, well, how could they be in the age to come now if they're also in the present age? Right. And, and the answer is yes, they are. It's talking about two kingdoms. The present age is the time of the kingdom of the devil. He's the one ruling. People are not adhering to Torah, to God's law. The age to come is when God will send his Messiah to make all things right in God's kingdom to come. And you you see this biblical presentation of both happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah, because the age to come when the Messiah comes and brings his kingdom has already happened because the Mm -hmm. Messiah has come and brought his kingdom. What is unexpected was they thought that when when the age to come comes, the present age will disappear. Mm -hmm. And what we find out is, well, Jesus came and brought his kingdom, but only in part. And so now the age to come and the present age continue to both exist simultaneously. The confusing part, as you're mentioning, is the age to come doesn't get renamed. Mm-hmm. Like once it comes, it's not it's, it's no longer, well, it's the age that was to come, but now is here. It's like, no, it's just, they still call it the age to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they both exist in the present. Yeah. All right. Verse uh, 27 through 29, it says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. That is what I mean, brothers, and we could say brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. So what's going on with this? Because it kind of seems like, I don't know if it's doublespeak, it's a little confusing. Uh, what, What is he telling us to do? Yeah, I think the answer is that your translation did a good job with it. I think the answer is that he's talking about people that are engaged and saying, if you go ahead and get married, you haven't sinned. It's okay. Remember he said earlier that, hey guys, if they're single and they don't have the gift, talking about people that have been widowed, if they're single and they don't have the gift, let them remarry. Same thing. Hey, these guys are betrothed. They don't have the gift. Let them marry. Whereas this ascetic faction, we think, in Corinth was saying, no, you guys can't get married. You have to stay as you are because of the present evil age. And Paul's like, no, I, let, let them go ahead and marry. And if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And a, apparently the ascetic faction was saying that they have sinned. And Paul's like, no, it's okay. Go ahead and get married. Okay. When in verse 27 of my translation, it says, uh, are you bound to a wife? And then, and that's where it's like, you know, if not basically don't seek a wife, and then it says, and then it talks about being betrothed. Are those are those using, uh, you know, for for us where we just have a completely different marriage system in the West in the modern West now, is bound meaning presently being married, whereas betrothed is the similar, you know, similar to being engaged. Is that is that the way you would say it, or is is betrothal a, a, like a pre marriage, or wh- how how would I, you actually define uh, what that is, betrothal, and how that works against being bound to a wife. I would have to actually look up and and examine what's happening in the Greco-Roman culture. I mean, I, I know how to answer it from an Old Testament Palestinian mm-hmm. first century Jewish Christian culture in the in Palestine, but I don't have I'm, I'm not certain what the answer is. So that's to. interesting. That's one of those times where it's good then to make sure that when we're when we're in a, a certain book of the Bible, mm-hmm. we're not merely saying, oh, Mary and Joseph 
they right. were betrothed. So that means the same thing. Right. So th- yeah, this, it might not. Yeah. So it could be taking that Jewish idea and, or it could be talking about a Greco Roman idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Amen. I want that one. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. Uh, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Yeah. So is this talking about an advantage to being single here? Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that we discussed a little bit last time. We kind of touched on a little bit as well. The church needs to hear these verses because he is acknowledging that singleness has benefits and singles can be ultimately be more devoted to the service of the Lord. I think what we discussed last time a little bit also was requiring singleness for people going into the ministry. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. I think that can be dangerous. If they don't have the gift, that doesn't make any sense. And we discussed that. But Paul's simply saying, look, it has its advantages. And I know people, and we've discussed this before, that they're in the church and like, I'm single and I want to be single and I'm not a diseased person. I'm not, something's wrong with me. I just, I choose this life. I want this life. I'm fine with it. You know, we, we look at people go, well, if you're not married, then something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. If you're not married, then there's, there's a reason why nobody chose you. Yeah. Like, no, I, I chose this life. I deliberately chose to be this. And I think we need to uh, respect that and acknowledge that. I'm curious how you might because I know we hinted a little bit at last time, but just to flesh it out a little bit more, say you were to counsel someone who you have person a, who's the, they're, they're content being single. Mm-hmm. And I actually like you and I, when we used to go to a different church, I know of someone and you probably know this person as well. And they were single and it, it's like, this is their, they, they were okay with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something they chose. I'm thinking of other people though, who might, like I'm thinking of, of of someone who I know in my own mm-hmm. congregation now who they struggle with this and they're mm-hmm. they're in their thirties. They want to be in a relationship right. and they're struggling. They're saying like, if I'm reading Paul correctly, is this something where like, do you have a gift because you actually are okay with this? Or is this something where I don't know if I have the gift or not, but I'm going to pursue it or I'm going to be okay with it. Like they're struggling with it in themselves. So is, is it something where, how could I, how could I rephrase this? Mm-hmm. Is the gift of singleness something that someone is a gift in terms of like, like you and I have the gift of teaching, right? The spiritual gift of teaching. We would say we, we, that's something that we pursue. We embrace is the gift of singleness. Someone, something that someone might say like, yeah, I, I choose and I want to be single. Or is it something that maybe someone is like, maybe they actually desire to be in a relationship, but they are actually, uh, I don't want to say relinquishing this, but they're saying I'm accepting the fact that I am single. Could, could you say mm-hmm. that's the gift of singleness as well? I don't think so. I, so you think it'd be something where it's like they, they actually hold on to that as being okay with it. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I, if I understand your question or your statement correct, I think, yeah, they're, they're embracing singleness, even though they'd prefer not to be. Okay. okay. So, and for those people, I mean, the good news today is you have all these opportunities for finding people right online mm-hmm. and, and various match.com and whatever the other things I don't it's good to know that I don't know what they are. I was going to um, say, are they a sponsor? I don't even, we shouldn't yeah, be talking yeah, about no. them unless they want to sponsor the show. Farmersonly.com, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's keep tracking through verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 
But whoever uh, is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity about having his desire under control, and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So is this like is saying like, hey, you could even break off your engagement if if needed? Is that what it's talking about? I think it, I think the answer is that if you're engaged, and it says the different translations are, are awkward here. But if a, if a person think, is acting unbe, unbecomingly, the New American Standard says towards your virgin daughter. There's no mm-hmm. way there's a virgin daughter because who would act unbecomingly towards your mm-hmm. daughter? It has to, to do with sexual impropriety. So it has to be, and the word daughter is in, ita- uh, is in italic, so it's like not in the text. You're acting unbecomingly towards your virgin, which is probably like towards your betrothed or towards your uh, fiance. New Revised says behaving indecently towards his fiance. Yeah, which is probably correct. I, I think that's more likely to be correct than, than to say it's her father or mm. it's it's the man's daughter. So then Paul's simply saying, look, if you're engaged couples, uh, you don't have to listen to these people over there who are telling that you can't get married. Go ahead and marry if you desire. I, I think that's the basic, the basic gist of what he's saying here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we finish this section out, uh, the last two verses. A wife, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes mm-hmm. only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. So is it's kind of taking the same idea and just applying it to a widow, I guess, mm-hmm. in that regard. Yeah. In first Timothy, I think it's first Timothy. Paul's going to say that widows, if they're still young and they can remarry, uh, then let them remarry. And if they have a family, then let the family take care of them. The idea, you know, the responsibility of who's going to take care of the mm-hmm. widows. Well, if you have a family, then your, your kids take care of you. That's who takes care of you. And if she's young, don't put her on the list. And the idea is that apparently this list is those who are going to be are widows and the church is going to care for her mm-hmm. and that you're going to make a covenant to care for the church. And then, if, but if they're young and they get remarried, then they, they kind of break that covenant to the church. And Paul's like, look, just don't put them on the list yet. Uh, and so I think what he's saying here now is, look, she can remarry. Totally fine. He does that an interesting provision. He must belong to the Lord, mm-hmm. which I think seems to indicate, yeah, look, the reality is, is that some of the people in Corinth got were already married. The husband or the wife, one or the other, may have come to faith in Christ, and then the other spouse didn't. And so you have this uh, situation where you have um, a Christian and a non-Christian being married. But Paul's saying, like, if you do go get married, find somebody that, that's a believer. That's kind of the basic provision there. But interestingly, he says, oh, I too have the spirit of God, which you have to figure is a sarcastic reply to the Corinthians. They were probably claiming that this is especially likely when we read chapters 12, 13, and 14. They were probably claiming Mm -hmm. some level of spirituality and Mm -hmm. spiritual um, superiority. And Paul's like, look, I got the spirit of God too. Well, and it's interesting too, it's coupled with what we just saw in three through six, where there's a lot of spirit of God language in terms of temple, uh, in terms of the believers. And then we'll see, like you said, in 12 through 14 with spirit of God giving spiritual gifts. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's funny that he kind of lobs that there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we start in chapter eight, verse one now, mm-hmm. and this is somewhat of a new section, right? It, it's yeah. kind of obvious that you're starting a new topic. Yeah, because he says now concerning again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now concerning is your indication that he's responding to things that were in a letter. We put the previous now concerning, I think it was verse 25 that we started with tonight. Now concerning, we put that in chapter seven because it's still in this topic of marriage and remarriage and divorce and singleness, kind of bracket all that together. But chapter eight, one now is, is a new topic. Uh, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. 
Uh, and what you see then, interestingly, is this section begins in 8.1, but it probably goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. The chapter break mm -hmm. is probably not in the best place. Mm -hmm. uh, in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, now I praise you because you remember me and everything, hold from me to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. It seems that he's changing topics, but notice it's not, it doesn't say now concerning. The next now concerning is in 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. And what we'll argue or discuss in our next episode, we're going to look at the issue of women in the church and women in ministry. Do they have to have head coverings and a really complex passage in chapter 11? And what we're going to notice is that even though chapter 12, verse 1 begins a new section, because I want you to be now concerning spiritual gifts, he says, it's he's still kind of going backwards still to, to what was previously. So anyways, mm -hmm. the point though for now is chapter 8, 1 through 11, 1 is a, is a unit. Uh, and the issue is, and this is a, it's a really complex section. The issue is how to live as a faithful follower of Jesus in the midst of a pagan culture. Now, what's really hard for us to get our heads around is what it was like to live in a pagan culture. If we think our culture is pagan, it's mm -hmm. not like Rome. Mm -mm. There were gods and goddesses everywhere. There's sacrifices of the gods and the goddesses. The religion and economics and politics, society were all significantly inter interwoven. If you worship the gods and treat the gods well, then they will take care of us and the nation. It was just highly, highly pagan culture. And for the Christians to come along and say, there's only one Lord, it's Jesus and other gods, sorry, we can't do anything about that, is really problematic. So I think a lot of Christians are going to look at, the, at these three chapters and go, oh, you know, that was a, a problem back then, but it's just not a big deal for us. You know, let's just kind of read through eight through 10, kind of gloss over it, whatever, we're all good to go. And don't realize that idolatry is alive and well. It's just changed what it looks like. And yeah. maybe it's even more sinister because it doesn't look like it's alive and well. When it's in Rome, you knew. Mm -hmm. So I think this has been interesting. Well, it, and even as you were mentioning that, that first part about the infusing of you know idolatry with you know everything, we, we have a binary like separation of church and state. We right. make it like two different things. And for them, it's like, we wouldn't call it church and state, but religion and state, obviously that's mixed yeah. religion and commerce that's mixed. Like, it, like it, religion. And we could say, you know, sport, everything is going to be just infused with this sort of thing. Yes, very much. And so, yeah, every we just, best, we best. have no concept as, as religious as we think we are or not. <laughs> right. It's just not even close. Yeah. And I think we've mentioned this before, but if you go on um, wherever you might get your books, but uh, there's a series of books out that are titled A Day in the Life of, oh, or yeah, A Week in the great. Life of, yep. I think one's a week in the life of Ephesus, one's a week in the life of Corinth, one's a week in the life of a Greco-Roman woman. Yeah, a I think slave. Gary Burge wrote uh, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, A Week in the Life of a Roman Soldier or Centurion. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, they're excellent. They're just, yeah. they're really easily readable and it just immerses you. It takes you through seven days of an individual's life who happens to live in Ephesus. Uh, biblical scholars who do an excellent job of putting themselves in the first century world. And it really helps you understand what's going on. And what those are cool too, is they have a narrative of this fictitious yeah. person, but yeah. then they have these sidebars on uh, every other page where it yeah. will just kind of give uh, a quick rundown of like, you know, from a scholarly standpoint, like, Hey, here's what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and so it's seriously, they're great yeah. resources there. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So chapter eight, verse one, now concerning food offered to idols, obviously right there, we know it's not just now concerning, but mm -hmm. food offered to idols, new topic. Right. We know that all of us possess knowledge. And then it says this famous passage, this yeah. knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, yeah. uh, which is oftentimes used, especially in, uh, you know, in the anti-intellectual crowd. Yep. Say you don't need to learn more. You just need to love more. 
Right. Is that what's happening here? <laughs> well, the problem with saying you don't need to learn more, you need to love more is you have to tell me that. You have to teach me that. I need yeah. to learn from you that yeah. I don't need to learn. I just need to love. It's like, yeah. okay, it's ridiculously inconsistent. Well, and especially in a culture of idolatry, you need to learn, well, what is love? <laughs> like, like you have to teach, yes. like th these people have no problem loving. It's just, what are they loving? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to have a lot of struggles. And this is very much, as we've discussed before, related to first Corinthians. They wrote a letter to Paul. They're making certain arguments. They're undermining Paul's apostleship. They're not listening to Paul. Paul's making statements and decrees, and they're not abiding by it. So they wrote Paul a letter and said, this is what's going on. This is why we think this way. Paul, what do you have to say? And it might be like Paul's allies who wrote him the letter. Hey, this is what they're saying. What do you think about this, Paul? We, we don't know. But the difficulty throughout this letter is going to be discerning what Paul was saying and what they are saying. And, and again, I, I think they were saying, look, we have this knowledge. And what not the knowledge that we have is that idols don't exist. So there's no problem. We're good to go. We can go to the temples. We can do whatever we want. We can eat the food sacrificed to idols. And Paul's going to respond by saying, look, you are indeed free. And when he, when he uses this imagery of freedom, he's talking about the Exodus, a lot of Exodus imagery. And we'll see this in chapter 10. Mm -hmm. He's specifically going to refer back to the Exodus uh, community and the people that were led out of Egypt from their slavery. So and Paul's answer is, yeah, you might have freedom, totally true, but you can't use your freedom to sin. After all, look what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. They went off and did immorality, and 23,000 of them died in one day. Like, oh. More specifically, though, for Paul, is that you can't use your freedom to cause others to sin. Mm -hmm. So sure, you have this knowledge, and your knowledge is the idol doesn't exist. There's no God but one, so we're all good to go. And Paul's answer is, that's great, but the problem is this. Your knowledge without love is worthless. Now, and I think it's so significant here that we always keep in mind what a biblical definition of love is. I don't know about you, Vinny, but for years, I sat in the church and you hear about love all the time. And then it struck me one day, I'm like, I don't think that our congregations have a very good definition or understanding of what biblical love even is. You know, we think of love as I like people, I'm nice mm -hmm. to people, I'm kind to people, you know. And, you know, love your enemies, like, okay, I gotta, I gotta like you. It's like, no, that's not what it means. Love is defined by the cross. Love is defined as, and we'll see this throughout the entirety of the New Testament, laying down your life for the sake of the other. Love looks like what Jesus did for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Ah, not, not he sent him, he gave him. And that's the definition of love means that I'm willing to lay down my life. I might not like you. I might not appreciate what you're doing. And I might really despise what you're doing to my family or whatever else it is, but I will lay down my life for you. Hmm. Like that's the essence of love. So we could like pizza, but we love people. No, we love pizza. I was going to say, like, you love and pizza. I like people and I like people. <laughs> yeah. Let's get that straight. We exactly. love pizza and some people we like. Yeah. But I love yeah. them all anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Verse two through six gets into a really cool. I, I remember the first time I ever saw yeah. what was happening. Mm. It was like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can't tell without, without, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. Uh, go ahead and yeah. read it. To, yeah. So, so verse, verse two will say, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating a food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven on or on earth, as indeed there are many 
gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for who, whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom and through whom we exist. That's a mouthful, but man, yeah. this is a cool passage because this is basically Paul uh, Christianizing the Shema, right? Yes. Yeah. So the Shema is Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and depending on your translation, how you, how you get all that. So the Shema was this prayer that was absolutely central to Jewish life and identity. It's, it was cited by Jews two times a day. It's their pledge uh, of allegiance. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, 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 that's a, a very good way of putting, of, of putting it. So it's hard for Christians to kind of relate to this, but this is their cultural identity, their social identity, their religious identity. Everything that they do is oriented around loving the Lord your God, and this is the center of it. And what they were saying, apparently now, that the, and I mean, when I say they, I mean the people in Corinth were saying is, hey, look, we have this knowledge. And it's knowledge based on Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, look, there's only one God, and idols don't exist, and other gods don't exist. Therefore, they can go to the pagan feasts and go to the pagan temples. And those who know these know this are superior, and the rest are weak, and we've questioned their behavior because they don't have the same knowledge as we have. Remember, remember Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 13, if I, have the, the, if I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. So I tell him to have all knowledge, can know all mysteries. But I don't have love. This is the this is the group of people he's talking to, and their knowledge was based on the Shema. And Paul's response by is by the way, oh, guess what? You're missing something. The Shema begins with love God. It's here is the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Oh, and if we have a love for God, then you're right. There's no room for other gods; they don't exist. But it also means that you have to reject idolatry and reject mm-hmm. anything that's associated with idolatry. And though it's Paul's responding to those in Corinth by saying, you know, you have this knowledge and you cite the Shema, but the very basic expression of the Shema is a rejection of idolatry. Mm-hmm. And so if we love God, yeah, great. But then we, then we must pledge allegiance to him and not to idols. So... Paul's doing something though that is, I don't know. Yeah. You got to think it's either blasphemous or right. it's uh, something just amazing because he's putting, he's associating Jesus with God. He's putting Jesus on the God side of the equation here. Yeah. So verse six is basically the Shema. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And then he goes on, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And if you have time at home, if you're listening, or wherever, you, whenever you might have time, just take verse six and um, kind of chart it out. Look, take the first part of the sentence: mm-hmm. "There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things." The second part of the sentence: "One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things." Go back to the first part again. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. The second part: "One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him." Clearly. The two statements are parallel with one another. And what he did is, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord your God. I mean, the Lord would be Yahweh in Hebrew, mm-hmm. and God would be Elohim. And Paul has parsed the Lord and the God separately and said, okay, there's one God, it's the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. 
And then the Lord, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So he's absolutely added Jesus to the Shema, and it's it's blasphemous if if you want to go there. Now, if it's not true, <laughs> yeah, if it's not true, it's mm -hmm. intensely blasphemous, and you can see why the Jewish people and the you know um, were having so much trouble with mm -hmm. Christianity and, and why they were questioning Jesus. Are you saying that you are the Lord your God of the Shema uh, that we discussed in our podcast on um, uh, Mark chapter twelve? But what Paul's saying, doing then is he's taking this central affirmation of Judaism, which is monotheistic to the core. And he's, and it's, this, and it's this absolute affirmation of loyalty to God. And then saying, yeah, let's now add Jesus to it. And adding Jesus to it, and he's simply saying, in doing so, Jesus and God are the ones to whom you are loyal and not Rome. Mm -hmm. But he goes even farther. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. But by adding Jesus to it, it goes even farther. And the key thing actually is this, is it's not just Jesus that's inserted. Let's just keep reading. Let's go down to verse uh, 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Now, notice it's not just Jesus that's inserted here. Central to the affirmation of Jesus is the crucified Jesus, mm -hmm. the Jesus on the cross. And so, um, as we discussed at the beginning of our study in 1 Corinthians, and that is, it's we preach Christ crucified. And now Paul is taking Christ crucified and exalting him to the center of, of uh, the Shema. Verse 12, so by sinning against, against the brother. And so by sinning against the brothers and wounding their conscience, which is weak, you sin against Christ. Hmm. So for Paul, this is this is really significant. All right. Okay, so as we look into chapter nine, then how does that relate to what's happening in terms of, you know, food and idols and all that sort of thing? Yeah, so remember, this is the same context. So chapter eight, verse one, through at least 11, verse one to section, the next now concerning is in 12, verse one. And the issue has been eating food, sacrifice titles. And Paul is still on the same topic. And we, we're going to be certain of that when we get to chapter 10. But you look at chapter 9, and it's going to be really important. Just This is a good example of how to read something in context. So chapter 9, Paul is going to start off by saying, look, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And of course, the answer is yes, you are free. Yes, you are an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Which is an important statement by itself. And are you not my work in the Lord? So verse two, if, if to others I'm not an apostle, I, at least I am to you. Verse uh, uh, three, my defense is this, verse four, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas, which is Peter? Verse six, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at times serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of it? So it looks like Paul's like, look, I have a right to eat and drink. I have a right to take along a believing wife. I have a right to do these things. Clearly, I can exercise my right to do these things. 
But as you keep reading, you realize, wait a minute, Paul actually goes on to affirm, I'm not exercising my right to do this thing. Look what he says, verse 12. But we didn't use this right. I'm in the middle of the verse. We didn't use this right. We endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So he's like, I have these rights, but I don't use them. Why? Because of love. In other words, mm-hmm. you have this knowledge that there's only one God and I don't, don't exist. And then therefore you're going to go to the temp- pagan temples and, sec- and do all these things because you're, you're fine. But you're causing someone else to sin. Someone for whom Christ died. And when you cause someone else to sin for whom Christ died, you're sinning against Christ. So Paul's like, look, I have freedoms just like you. I have these rights just like you. I can take a believing wife. I can eat and drink. I, I don't have to work for a living because I deserve to be paid, but I didn't use these rights. And therefore, you shouldn't either if it's causing harm to someone else. So this is how he finishes up, like going back to chapter eight. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's this idea that we have these freedoms, but I'm going to give these things up. Yeah, because that's what love looks like. Yeah. Love looks like it's more concerned for the other than it is for yourself. Yeah, exactly. And chapter nine, and I know we're glossing over it, but mm-hmm. he, he, he talks about the fact that this is the way it works. Uh, uh, the farmer deserves to get right to eat from the produce of his flock, the the, the soldier doesn't serve at his own expense. You know, he's getting paid for this. I have a right to get paid, but I'm not exercising that right for all the reasons that we discussed in previous episodes. And because I'm more concerned with love and, and the gospel than I am concerned with uh, exercising my own rights. Now, he finishes this off with a really, I think, a powerful passage. Verse 20, he's, uh, chapter 9, verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became a Jew. Well, actually, let me go back to verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I may win the more. To the Jews, I became a Jew. So I meant when the Jews, but to those who are under the law, as, un, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so I might win those who are under the law. But to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And then a famous passage here at the close of chapter nine, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you may win the prize. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to get a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as I'm not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified from the prize. Wow. It's interesting too, because he's using this virtue of self-control that would have existed in the Roman mindset. Uh, And he's just saying, hey, yeah, this is a Christian virtue as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, before we leave chapter nine, just even as an application point, you, you could read a similar thing in Romans chapter 13 and you mm-hmm. see you know that playing out in 13, 14 and into 15 in terms of unity and self-sacrifice for the sake of others, not causing others to stumble. Do you think what Paul is doing here is saying, I'm going to be a vegetarian and never eat meat? Or is he saying, hey, this is situational. When I'm in a situation right. where this is going to cause someone to stumble, I'm not going to do it. But he's not right. calling people to a life of vegetarianism. No, if because if you took that took it that way, then you would be an ex- extreme ascetic. You mm-hmm. just wouldn't do anything because you don't know what's going to offend somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so the answer is yeah, it's totally situational. When I'm with the Jews, I'm not going to eat pork. I'm, just, mm-hmm. I'm I know I'm not. It's going to be offensive to them. 
Uh, when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this, but but at the same time, but I'm not going to the pagan temples because that's not that's that's going that's crosses the boundary line there. Yeah, yeah, it, it very much so. And I don't think we have any sense of. I I don't know about you. I can't think of a situation where in our contemporary evangelical church setting here in 21st century America, that we even think of these things, mm-hmm. right? We, we go, okay, I'm going in. All right, I got to be aware that this is kind of the, and I don't want to be offensive and cause my brother to stumble. So I think maybe the one issue, I mean, the way I was raised was alcohol, right? Some yeah. churches say you can't drink at all because you don't know if the person across the room is an alcoholic yeah. or not. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, and then you go to a Presbyterian church and wine, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they take the church van to go um, uh, wine tastings. Like, really? Okay, cool. Well, and I was going to say, I'm, I'm part of the Baptist tradition, and that's yeah. definitely something that's steeped in Baptist culture, yep. yeah. is is alcohol becomes the boogeyman, and, and the idea of teetotaling is still very much uh, present in many Baptist congregations. And, and that's where I was even in my own congregation. Mm-hmm. There is this noble idea to say, we don't want to cause another brother to sin, and so they'll appeal to passages like this. But what's interesting, because I've been hanging out in this a lot, I'm teaching through Romans right now, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've been studying Romans 13 on that. And Doug Moo has a great point uh, in his commentary where his thing is, well, yeah, it's it's good wisdom to not want to do something that might cause someone to stumble. Mm -hmm. The the actual point that Paul is making here is it's not just we're doing something that could cause someone else to sin, but we want to avoid doing things that could bring spiritual destruction to their life. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's going to be a spiritual roadblock that we might be engaging in? And so that's what we want to give up for someone else. Cause like you said, anything could be a, a struggle. You know, it, you know, when you look at issues in, in America right now, like things like heart disease and uh, diabetes and these sorts of things that are a direct result of trans fatty foods and the mm-hmm. way we just consume sugar and those sorts of things. You know, if, if alcohol is a problem, those types of things are an epidemic, yeah. you know, by, by like tenfold in our, in our country, but we would, but we would never, we would never say, Hey, Christian, don't go to Wendy's. Right. You know, cause like chances right. are, That's you know, you know, one in however many people in your congregation might struggle with alcohol. You know, if, let's just arbitrarily say it's one in 10, but I bet you one in four is struggling with their weight. If, yep. not, if not a higher if not number. Not more. If not yeah. more. Yeah. 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 And so why do we take those things? If we're going to hold that standard, why wouldn't we do the same thing? You know, pornography yeah. is a huge issue, yeah. well, but how many of our churches all have websites? Right. And so, and so we say, hey, go to, you know, yourchurch.com, whatever that is. Right. Well, how is that not causing the, the person to stumble? Because their next site there might be on, might be a porn site. And right. so it was like, hey, are we actually doing these things or what's happening there? So yeah, the heart behind I it, I think is good though. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's extremism, right? Going too far and being legalistic and what have you. I think the answer is the, the point that I would want to make here would be, are we even thinking about this mm-hmm. now? I would be reticent to say, are you thinking about this and then therefore going to legalistic ends? Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. You might say, I'm not going to have alcohol because the person that comes in my house might have an issue with alcohol and I don't want to do it in front of them. Okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But don't judge the other brother that does it. Yeah. yeah. Because they want they want to have wine with with a meal. You know, and when I first got to a church and they were taking the church van to go to go um wine tasting, I was thinking, that's not good, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I realized, you know what? non-Christians go, there's a church van here? Mm -hmm. That actually might be a positive witness to some who think Christians are so narrow-minded and snobby and judgmental that they would never drink. No, we can drink, some would say, 
we can drink as long as we do it in moderation and we can take the church van out and have a have a good time. That might actually be a positive witness. So mm-hmm. be careful about being so judgmental saying you shouldn't be doing things like that. I, I think that's, uh, I don't know, something to be. Yeah. And I, and I think at the end of the day, this goes back to your idea of how we talk about love. It's not mm-hmm. your idea. But the idea is that it's easy to say, we're just not going to do these things to not cause someone to stumble. And I think there's a good heart behind that, good motivation. Yeah. But how easy is that to to put that in the, in the place of loving someone, right? Because when I actually get to know someone and love them, and then I actually know what's going on in their lives, right? I might have to be more deliberate in the choices I make and what I restrict. And, and, and so I think a better call a more noble call is to just love is to actually get in relationship and love people and to know what is the thing I need to hold back from, or what are the thing I need to not do in front of this person or challenge myself, not just say, well, I'm just not going to do this thing and make this one thing, a pious thing that I do. Yeah. And if you establish a community that way, then you've restricted people from coming to your community who do do that. Yes. And, and feeling welcome and love, et cetera. Now, another thing to consider too, and that is, and I, I'm totally with you on the a- epidemic of obesity and the problems with mm-hmm. fatty foods and all that good stuff. But you have a lot of families that are, that, that is their only eating out option. They, they just oh. can't afford, they can't yeah. afford Outback. They can't, yep. they can't do yep. that. So for them, they can take their, their family, they can go to McDonald's or whatever. And that's, and, and you have to respect that. You have to say, yep. I understand that this is this is your high dining and it's an opportunity. Oh, I'm not that. at all judging yeah, that. I know. It, it, but, and, and a lot of, I mean, this goes into other systemic issues and especially you see in poorer communities, the rise of just just terrible food options yes. and how we and we pour that there's a miseducation there. And, and so you see that, unfortunately, especially in lower income communities where this is what they thrive on because this is what's available and it's cheap. It's and how cheaper. much damage yeah. are they doing themselves? It's all, oh, buy yes. an apple sometime. It's expensive. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And, um, fruit, which is really good for you, is yeah. is actually very eating healthy is more expensive. Yes, yeah. and so the poor can't afford to do that. And so mm-hmm. here we are looking down on them. Like, look at their health and look at their diet. No, look at yeah. the things they're doing. That food is actually cheaper. That's why they buy it. Yep. They they can feed their kids tonight, um, and they can go to bed, you know, not hungry if they buy a bag of Doritos as opposed to buying a thing of grapes. Because yep. a thing of grapes is going to cost more money to feed than to feed the whole fit, whole family. Yep. yep. So, yeah. and once again, it's looking at how can we love our neighbor? What does yeah. that look like? So, yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's let's get into uh, chapter ten. Yeah, and so uh, let's look at the first eleven verses here. Okay. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. But we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages had come. So once again, if, uh, Paul is referring back to, he's importing some Old Testament language, and he's including Jesus into that. First, it was the Shema. Now we see Jesus in the wilderness, too. Yeah, yeah, all right. Let, all right, let's frame the context. The, the, so the context, he's still con- still discussing the same topic. And that is your knowledge without love is leading to idolatry and causing your brother and sister to stumble in Christ and leading them astray. This is not good. 
I had all these rights. I had all these privileges. I had all these freedoms and I didn't use them. So now chapter 10, and guess what? Our fathers also had this freedom. They were, they were, notice what he says, by the way, they were baptized into Moses. The coming to the Red Sea was their baptism, Paul says. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And they all had spiritual food, the man on, right? They drank from the spiritual drink. This is actually really interesting. Moses strikes a rock at the beginning mm-hmm. of the 40 years and Moses strikes a rock at the end of the 40 years, right? But now, where's the rock in the middle of the 40 years? And the idea is the rock mm-hmm. was following them. That's, mm-hmm. just, that's just this Jewish interpretive tradition that the rock was following them, right? And Paul's just, he's literally citing Jewish interpretive tradition. But then he Christologizes it. He's like, oh, and that rock was Jesus. That's where they got the water from. And then you read into that and go, oh, that's why Moses couldn't enter the promised land because he struck the rock twice and he was only mm-hmm. supposed to strike it once and the rock was Jesus. So the point, though, is this, is they had all these freedoms. They had all this knowledge, because look at the knowledge that they have. They were under the cloud. That was God's presence by day. They knew of God's presence. When the cloud moved, they moved. They all passed to the Red Sea. I mean, just think about the knowledge you have of God now. The Red Sea parts. You know you're chosen. You know you're special. You know you're unique. You know that God's going to provide for you. God provides food every day. God provides water for you in the middle of a desert. This is awesome. You know this. Nevertheless, verse 5. With them, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and they were laid low in the wilderness. Right, the whole mm-hmm. generation that left Egypt dies, and the next generation rises up and enters the promised land. And why? Well, because they craved evil things. And Paul's answer, in verse six, is, "Don't do what they did and crave evil things." Verse seven, "Don't be idolaters as they did." Verse eight, "Don't be immoral as some of them did." And they twenty-three thousand of them died in one day. And don't try the Lord because some of them were destroyed by serpents. And don't grumble. And that's one of the funny verses in the Old Testament, right? They, uh, we were so much better off in Egypt. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. had dates. And you know, it's like, what? They were grumbling, as Jesus says in uh, Luke 15. The Pharisees were grumbling. Don't grumble. And they were destroyed by the, by the destroyer. These things happen as an example. And then look what he says. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. So there, And that, again, talks about the, this end of the age kind of thing, that the, the age to come is now already here. And it was written for us. Now, look what he goes on to say. He says, therefore, verse 12, if you think you're wise, I don't know if, you, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you. Very famous verse, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you won't be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14, flee from idolatry. So that's, we now know for certain He's on the same topic. You have this knowledge, you have this freedom, but don't use it to cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble because when you do, that's someone that Christ died. Mm-hmm. And I had these freedoms, but I decided to not use them because I'm going to be all things to all men that I may win the more. Mm. So flee immorality and flee idolatry. This passage is often misinterpreted in verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And it's oftentimes said, God won't give you more than you could handle. I don't know if you've how, how many yeah, times you've yeah, heard that. Yeah, right. And it's like, no, that's not what the passage, God regularly gives me more than I could handle. And yeah. the point is you, you, you depend on the spirit of God to get you through it. Right. What this is saying is no, he's never going to give you a temptation that you cannot handle. And f- so flee from that temptation. If you right. have the spirit of God, you can do that. And, right. and I think that's the, the that's you know, we, yeah, we got to make sure that we're doing that. Cause I've heard that yeah. so many times. Mis- and the wrong expectation happens when the wrong interpretation happens anyway. So that's the first chunk of chapter 10. We're going to finish out chapter 10 in the next episode, right? 
Actually, there'll be two episodes. So we're okay. going to do the beginning of chapter 11 in our next episode with Paul and the discussion of women. Do they have to wear head coverings? What does it mean? And what's going on there? And we're going to talk about women in the church and, and how do we understand that text? And then the episode after that, we'll get into the end of chapter 11, which is a communion passage. And uh, the end of chapter 10 relates to the communion passage. So we'll save the end of chapter 10 for, for that one. Okay. Uh, any just final thoughts as, as we've looked at these a few chapters, uh, anything you want to tie up or uh, tie well, up, tie around? I guess all I would say, <laughs> tie a bow on. I guess all I would say is just keep this idolatry thought in mind because Paul's going to say that greed in, uh, in the book of Colossians, greed is idolatry. Mm-hmm. And so we, we tend to think that idolatry is just, it was easy for them to be fallen of idolatry because there's gods everywhere, but for us, it's not, we don't have to worry about it. It's just no big deal. And I think the answer is actually it's a lot worse now, as we said at the beginning of this episode, that uh, it's it's more sinister now because it's it's hard to see idolatry, yet it's all around us. Mm-hmm. Um, the clothes we wear, the the cars we drive, sometimes the homes we live in, sometimes just the extravagance. We're like, yeah, greed is idolatry because what happens? You've caused a brother to stumble because... Yes, idolatry is definitely as well alive today as it is back then. Yeah. Uh, it, it made me think though, even as you're saying that, I was having a conversation with someone in my congregation uh, last week who she had engaged in a lot of both physical and emotional abuse in, in a former relationship and the Mm. physical, physical abuse. When you talk to people who have been through like a woman, especially in her context, she had endured physical abuse and the bruises are gone. You know, Mm. you can work through some of that PTSD, Mm -hmm. But the more difficult abuse to get through is the emotional abuse. Right, exactly. Because it's like, it's a, where's the scar? You can't find yeah. that. It's just there. It becomes a part of you now. And and that's, you know, we almost have a more difficult time when it comes to idolatry, as you're saying, because in the ancient world, you could see it everywhere. It's very tangible. Whereas for us, we have, you know, even going back to the series we did last year on Christian nationalism, that could be a form of idolatry, mm-hmm. but it's wrapped up in something that seems virtuous or right. it, it's not this tangible thing in, in many ideas. It's just, in many ways, it's just ideas. And so mm-hmm. in, in our context, you know, because we're not a religious society in terms of this paganism, we oftentimes deny the paganism that is so around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's just something we need to, to be aware of because we have the same issues that the, the Corinthians have. In some ways, it's even more intense, though, just because of the lack of tangible, tangible aspect of it. Yeah, just I guess one more thought, and that would be that you know, you and I are recording this before the election that's coming up. By the mm-hmm. time they're hearing this, that the election will be done. How many Christians are going to be happy or upset yeah. based on what the election is? Yep. And that's where their hope is at. They're like, no, our hope is in Christ. Our hope mm-hmm. is is not in some election, as though they voted for good laws. I'm. This is all going to be great for me. It's like, well, that's that's. That's beside the point. The The point is I do all things that I might say that I might win the more. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think we just, I think we have to reflect on first Corinthians nine a little bit better and say, I became all things to all men that I might win the more. Well, and even just a point of that, cause I had a conversation with someone this week, they want a specific party to win because mm-hmm. that's going to help financially. And mm-hmm. when finances are happening, then inflation is going to go down and we're, we're going to have more money to spend. It's and, and even right there, it's it's to ease our financial burden, not so we could be more hospitable right. with our resources, not so we could help out the poor among us. It's so I could have my life of comfort back. Right. That's idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Hey, that's a great uplifting note to end on, right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to do it. So, all right. We'll be back next week, jumping into chapter 11 and doing another topic that is uh, 
going to be fun for everyone. See you then. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.